This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. I, I'd lived in um, Australia for the 10 years before I came to take the job with the city of Vancouver. And I, coming to a new place, you see things differently. And I was struck by this vast open space of asphalt. Christina DeMarco saw all that pavement and a bell went off. What if we made more room for houses by making streets skinnier? Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. What's a skinny street? Exactly like it sounds. You take a wide road, cut it in half, and use the rest to build homes. This country's in a housing crunch. Could an idea like this help? Also on the show today, your average cell phone is 100,000 times more powerful than the computer that landed Apollo 11 on the moon. It's a technological marvel. And yet, more people are now saying, no thanks, I'll take a flip phone? Up first, the weight loss drug Ozempic is being talked about like it's revolutionary. But we know most inventions don't change the world. So is it just another product? Or is it something bigger? The hype around Ozempic is huge. Like, it could reshape the economy. Novo Nordisk makes the diabetes-slash-weight-loss drug. Thanks to Ozempic, it's now Europe's biggest company. Its market value is more than Denmark's gross domestic product. It has its own song. Ozempic with Gobi Manjaro, no more So many people are starting to take weight loss drugs, snack companies are talking about shrinking product sizes. In one possible future, it could help airline profits. Skinnier passengers equal lighter planes and less money spent on jet fuel. It's like six degrees of Ozempic. But can one little drug really live up to the hype? Getting on it originally was kind of a... I have nothing else to lose at this point. Reagan Sather lives in Edmonton. She's 46 and has spent decades struggling with her weight. A year and a half ago, she talked to her doctor and decided to try this once-a-week shot, Ozempic. I'd say within two days of that initial shot, I had a very reduced appetite, and also it impacted how much I could eat, probably starting around half of what I was normally eating to even a quarter. The other thing it really impacted was what I like to refer to as food noise in your head. So sometimes people get those cravings, right? Where you're, you think about something or something pops into your head and it just starts to roll and you can't stop thinking about it. But um, that was completely gone. When she was younger, Reagan used to swim competitively. She loved being in the pool. But as I got older, as the weight came on, that became a more uncomfortable situation to be in. Even finding bathing suits became difficult. 
And so when I went on Ozempic and started to lose the weight, I then not only felt more comfortable putting on a bathing suit and going and getting back in the pool, but I could fit into a bathing suit that was appropriate for getting back in the pool. So Reagan is swimming again. Ozempic changed what she does in her free time. And also, how she spends. My grocery bill is definitely going to be different. So the amount I'm consuming is different, which would then impact the amount I'm buying. I know before I would go buy lunch. Now I bring the makings for my salad every day. So I'm not spending money uh, eating out or even just, you know, grabbing lunch, which could be anywhere between $15 and $20 a day. I'm buying the makings for my salad, which is probably, you know, maybe $20 for the week. This is the Ozempic effect. It's people spending less on groceries. Walmart says it's already seeing shoppers buy a little less food. But the ripples don't stop there. The share prices of medical companies are down. The idea being, thinner people will need fewer knee replacements, dialysis machines, heart medications. A link has also been found between weight loss drugs and addictive behavior. The science is still out, but they could curb certain impulses. Smoking gambling, even online shopping and scrolling social media. Spending less on all that would mean spending more on other stuff. Ozempic's gravitational pull could be huge, but revolutionary products that were going to change everything have come along before, and we're not all riding segways. So what will it take for weight loss drugs to live up to the big talk? Let's assume that it's as amazing as people say. The question becomes, well, does anything else need to happen for the promise of this offer to actually be realized? Ron Adner is a professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. In his book, The Wide Lens, What Successful Innovators See That Others Miss, he looks at products that change the world and ones that didn't. The smash hits, the stuff we all know, they share something in common. A lot of potential customers. And weight loss drugs have that. The rich world struggles with obesity. That's powered, you know, tens of billions of dollars of activity, right? From Weight Watchers to gyms to what have you. So, you know, if, if there is a magic weight loss pill, yeah, you'd imagine that's going to be appealing to a lot of people. In the U.S., more than 100 million people struggle with their weight. In India, it's almost one out of every four adults. So, yeah, there's a potential market here. And not just for Ozempic. It gets used as a catch-all term for every weight loss drug. But there's Wagovi, Manjaro, and more on the way. Science calls them GLP-1 drugs. They're made to treat diabetes. Regulators haven't approved most of them for weight loss, but a track record as a diabetes drug also means... It's gone through a, a, a rigorous and onerous regulatory review process. It's not some kook coming up with an off-label pill. There's a lot, you know, there's incredible science behind it, incredible research that's been pulled together... 
but it is early days. Ron Adner says the momentum behind these drugs could be derailed. The current rush doesn't mean they're a lock to change the world. This is true of, of a lot of pharmaceuticals, which is patients go on and then they decide it's not worth it to stay on, right? And so what we, what we haven't seen yet is, well, what are the... What are the side effects that I'm not even talking about long-term health? It's just, you know, if the nausea and all the other stuff that they're already talking about, where's that threshold where people say, you know, what's not worth it for me? The side effects are a big deal. Nausea, constipation. If you want the weight to stay off, you need to keep taking the shots. And weight loss drugs aren't cheap. In Canada, if you pay out of pocket, it's hundreds of dollars a month. In the States, it's more like a thousand a month. And for the azempic economy to be fully realized, prices will have to drop. And a lot of people will need to buy in. If it was an over-the-counter drug, then it would really just be up to consumers. Because it's a prescription drug, now you need to think about, well, doctors need to prescribe it. How are they going to think about when it's appropriate, when it's not? Insurers need to decide whether and how and when they cover it. They will play a vital role in determining how deeply this penetrate into the market and how quickly that penetration happens. When it comes to big innovations, a great idea only goes so far. Adner says the world also needs to be ready for it, or it won't take off. In the last few years, cryptocurrency and the metaverse were going to change everything. They didn't. They weren't the cell phone. Yeah, sometimes it happens where the thing, you know, where, where where the fantasy becomes real and becomes so pervasive, right? I mean, if you remember like Star Trek, you know, they, they would they would press a button on their shirts for the communicator and they could talk to anyone on the ship. The idea that you could have something like that in your pocket that we now totally take for granted. Um, yeah, so I think I think it happens. I think that's what makes like the times we're living in really kind of miraculous. So could weight loss drugs? actually reshape the economy? I am certainly not one who's going to dismiss this as it's a bunch of hype. No, actually, I think it's, remar- I, I think it's, it's remarkably important. It's remarkably well-timed. Um, is this a value proposition that uh, is likely to find massive demand in the market? If the proposition is painless weight loss, it's hard to come up with a bigger one. Reagan Sather spent 20 years looking for something that would help. Then, this once-a-week shot came along, and for her, at least? It is really life-changing for the people that are able to get it, to, um, to use it without, you know, really bad side effects, because it has made a difference for me. It absolutely made a difference for me. The Ozempic economy is still a long ways away from living up to all the big claims. Snack companies may never sell carrot sticks instead of chips. GLP-1s could just be a nice moneymaker for big pharma. But even if they don't shake up the global economy, we'll always have this. Skinny, thin, tiny, when. Ozempic would go beat Manjaro, no more sorrow. Put that shot in me. This is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haverschrude.
if you think about the history of communication, we had the printing press, well, thanks Gutenberg, the telegraph, rotary phones. Can you imagine Gutenberg holding an iPhone? What is this sorcery? Smartphones are a marvel of technological progress. Just think of all the things they can do. Who would give that up? Our producer Jennifer Keene, in a story from earlier this year, finds it's more people than you think. Uh, it's called Sunbeam. And then as far as Sunbeam flip phones go, there's... Three. Adrian Holt is showing off his brand new flip phone. called the Orchid. This there one's got all the... Actually, it's got almost nothing. So that's the one that has navigation and, uh, and weather. Oh, yeah, it's got navigation. It's from, if you remember MapQuest from like 15 years ago or whenever that was, it's very archaic. Adrian is one of a small but growing number of people ditching their smartphones and going retro buying flip phones, dumb phones, or what's technically known as feature phones. The irony of calling a phone a feature phone is that it doesn't have a whole lot of features at all. Carmi Levy is a technology reporter in London, Ontario. He says feature phones, with their low price tags, have always sold well in places like India and Africa. But recently, brands like Nokia are seeing more success in North America. We're not seeing a lot of data around it, but there's just enough that shows that needle is definitely triggering in the positive direction, uh, while every other device is kind of flatlining. Carmi thinks there could be lots of reasons behind the flip phone trend. For millennials, maybe it's nostalgia. For Gen Z, it could be an attention grabber. I want to stand out from the crowd. When I show up among my peers and they're all holding uh, an undifferentiated slab of touchscreen glass, I want to pull something out of my pocket that gets people's attention. Celebrities like Camila Cabello have been spotted with their flip phones, and social media influencers have been talking them up. And everyone is like, I love your phone, let me get a picture. I had someone come up to me and say, oh my God, you look so cool. But Levy thinks there's something else going on. After 15 years of living with computers in our pockets, some folks may just want to unplug. I think that's part of its appeal, is that it isn't constantly pinging us with notifications. It doesn't attract our attention all the time. It can sit quietly in our pockets until we want to use it, as opposed to a smartphone, which is almost always in our hands, begging for our attention. That's what drove Adrian Holt to buy a flip phone. He teaches grade six. He'd been noticing the pull of smartphones on his students and on himself. When I was really honest about it, I was using it a lot. I'd, I'd wake up in the morning, spend a good 15 to 20 minutes every single day looking at stuff that was uh, you know, not meaningful to what I needed to be doing on that day. I'd, uh, I'd, I'd end my day the same way. So, now that he's switched to a dumb phone, Adrian says he's sleeping better, and he's more focused on what's going on around him. 
So since I've been off, I've been a little bit more open to to actually talking to people when they're around and stuff like that and care a little bit more to hear what they have to say about things. So it's definitely uh, affected me in that way as well. And if MapQuest sends him to the wrong location, he can always ask his wife to check her smartphone. For The Cost of Living, I'm Jennifer Keene. This is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haberschrud. Canada is a big country, but we don't really use all the space. We cram a lot of people into a handful of big cities. So, ironically enough, for a country with nothing but room, space is at a premium. And now we have a housing crunch, we need more homes, but they ain't making any new land. Some cities have been grappling with this problem for a while. And Daniel Lerman... An answer could be closer than they think? They could be sitting right on top of it, if they maybe look differently at their streets. You know, roads take up a ton of land in this country. There are nearly 600,000 kilometers of local roads in Canada. That's a lot of pavement. Well, cities were designed for cars. They developed after the car was invented. So most streets are big. They're wide enough to handle two-way traffic plus parking on either side. And I was reminded of that when I was walking around Vancouver in the pouring rain with Christina DeMarco. She's a retired urban planner. I'd lived in um, Australia for the 10 years before I came to take the job with the city of Vancouver. And coming to a new place, you see things differently. And I was struck by this vast open space of asphalt. Christina says in a typical Vancouver neighborhood, local streets and back alleys take up about 30 to 40 percent of the total land area. Well, Vancouver needs housing, so we know it could use that space. Yeah, Vancouver is the most densely populated city in Canada, and it can't go anywhere. It it can't sprawl out because it's surrounded by mountains and ocean. Urban planners, they've been wrestling with this problem for years, and Christina DeMarco was working on it back in the 90s when she was in the planning department with the city of Vancouver. So she'd bike to work every day, meet up with her colleague, Ted Sebastian, and they'd ride together to City Hall. Just two urban planners on bikes. So very (laughs) Vancouver. It is so Vancouver. Day after day they did this, always took the same route, and then they started to notice something. There was just no traffic on the north-south streets to speak of, especially in the single-family areas. Ted Sebastian says their commute was about 40 blocks, but they almost never had to stop for cars. So for 40 blocks, they're just freewheeling. And it was rush hour. And you know what? It wasn't their imagination. They checked with the city's traffic department. It turns out very few cars were driving up and down the north-south streets. And that's when they had this eureka moment. All this land is free. It's owned by the city. So let's mine this wonderful resource. So we came up with the idea that if we just created a thinner street, we could use the other half for housing. So they want to take the existing road, make it skinnier, and then build more houses. That sounds... I don't know, kind of weird, hard to do. Is it possible? 
I had a really hard time visualizing what this could look like until I actually saw it. Ted and Christina showed me a thin street in Vancouver. Half the street had been given up to build an apartment. We're looking down the street and it's like cut right in half. Yeah, exactly. It just seems like a normal, narrow street. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think it would freak anybody out. Nobody's going to come across this on a car and say, what do I do now? <laughs> They'll just drive up it either way. So it's still a two-way street. It, it just only had parking allowed on one side. And Vancouver streets are wide enough to you know, do this and squeeze in more housing? For the most part, yeah. Because in Vancouver, the city doesn't just own the streets. It owns the boulevards, sidewalks, side yards. And if you put that all together... It's much, much wider than you would think. There's enough for two 33-foot lots on every north-south street. And what you want to do is give one to housing and leave the other half for the street and for parking and for street trees and for sidewalks. And this plan, which they called Thin Streets, had a few other things going for it. It wouldn't require rezoning or tearing down existing homes. So building housing right on top of some roads wouldn't be a problem. This is why Christina and Ted really thought their idea would be embraced. But we brought up the idea as part of a citywide plan. And I can't say uh, the idea was embraced. <laughs> the chief engineer basically said this was family silver that you were <laughs> giving up. <laughs> yeah, and it was, it was uh, not at all pleased with the idea. So the city didn't like the idea of giving up the family silver? <laughs> no, but their boss liked it. He thought it had potential. So he said, yeah, just, just work on it quietly on, from the side of your desk and figure out what streets could actually be thinned. They only looked at short blocks, which are corner lots, and calculated that there was enough space to add up to 20,000 new homes, new duplexes, condos, row houses. Well, that would help Vancouver's housing stock. It would. And another big advantage, it would generate new money, new revenue for the city through property taxes. Housing makes money for cities. Roads... On the other hand, they cost the city millions. I mean, think about all the paving that happens in a year and all the potholes that have to be filled. So they're out there. They're making their case for skinny streets. How'd it go? In 2012, they entered their thin streets proposal into an affordable housing competition for the city of Vancouver, and they won. The mayor at the time, Gregor Robertson, he liked the idea so much, he decided to pilot it. And a street was chosen in the South Vancouver community of Marpole. And? And it didn't go so well. Once homeowners got wind of the pilot, they descended on City Hall. They had chants, they had signs, and they had a slogan, Nimsy. Nimsy. Not in my side yard. <laughs> a lot of people like their corner lots, and Christina and Ted said that was a major sticking point. The main drawback is if you own that house on the end of the street, you're probably getting some enjoyment out of having windows and light on the side facing the street. So the people that live there often pick it because of the corner property. And so if you're going to propose changing their lot into internal lot, they're going to oppose it. And they really hate the idea. They go snaky about it. Now cities can be in a tough spot. 
they might want to densify, but people live there. They like their corner lots. They like their street parking. And those people vote. And in Vancouver, politicians didn't want to face backlash. They just kiboshed the pilot. I went with Christina and Ted to Marple, to the actual street where this idea could have happened, and I asked them if they ever think about it. That, that there was a missed opportunity? I do. Feelings of pain. <laughs> I, and I do feel a lost opportunity, as Ted said. They seem so sad. Yeah, but, you know, it's in the past. They, they've moved on, and they do feel hopeful. Why? Because the conversation is happening. Cities are starting to say streets don't just belong to drivers. They're a public asset. And we're seeing streets be used in different ways for bike lanes and pocket parks. Yeah, in the summers, you'll see bars put up patios and they'll take part of the street up. Exactly. And the thin streets idea is even starting to appear in some cities. A few years ago, Rochester, New York, tore out a big road in the middle of its city to build more homes. And one town in the UK shrunk down a huge roundabout to make space for more apartments. So thin streets, not dead. No. You could say it's at a fork in the road. All right. Thanks, Danielle. You're welcome. On last week's show, we talked about corporate jargon. We found some synergies, so now let's circle back on your key takeaways. Hi, I just listened to the episode about um, the vocabulary in the workplace. A couple that I don't like is circling back, and then I had another one, and I know I forgot it. Give me a second. I think the worst example of words that should never, ever be used again is when people especially journalists, use the word unpack. They say, let me unpack that for you. Oh, God. What was it? Lawyering up. Thanks to everyone for sticking a pin in that. And our cost of living mug goes to Lindsay Robertson, who just finished an MBA and was immersed in jargon like double click. Uh, Lindsay will not be double clicking anything ever. If you hear something on the show and want to call, our number is 1-866-550-COST. That's 1-866-550-2678. Or email costofliving at cbc.ca. That's the show for this week. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Habertrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.